Hello, print friends, and welcome to the ninth episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website featuring images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. If you want to get in touch, Pine Copper Lime can be found on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and pinecopperlime.com. And this episode is publishing on the first day of the SGCI conference in Dallas. So if you're there, please come on down to the vendor fair and say howdy. I'm going to be keeping this week's intro short and sweet so we can get right to the good stuff. And this episode is chocked full of it. My guest is Shayla Allery, who is a gallerist, curator, and arts educator who I worked with for five years at a gallery in Seattle which housed 17,000 antique, modern, and contemporary prints. Shayla offers us an incredibly comprehensive account of the commercial side of the print world, as well as some juicy anecdotes about life as a print gallerist. At the very end, she answers some great questions I got from listeners via Instagram, so I'm just going to let her take it away. But don't forget to subscribe to Pine Copper Lime as not to miss my next episode where I chat with Allie Norman. What? Yes, the Allie Norman about her printmaking practice, life in the Deep South, and moon magic. So without further ado, here's Shayla. Hi, Shayla. How's it going? Hi, doing great. How are you? I'm really good. It's good to hear your voice. I was just about to say the same thing. Yeah, it's been too long. It definitely has. So Shayla, probably of all the guests that I've had, you are the one that I know the best. (laughs) As we used to spend, I would say, at least 50 hours a week together. At least. And twice on Sunday. And um, (laughs) because we work together at Davidson Galleries for about five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was doing the contemporary department and you were the director of our antique and modern department. That means that this episode is going to be a little different than what we've done in the past in that as opposed to chatting with a contemporary artist or chatting about printmaking studio, we're actually going to be talking about the wonder of the secondary market for printmaking. But before we kind of dive into that, I'd love to invite you to introduce yourself for people who don't know you and maybe tell us a little bit about your background and your training and uh, all that good stuff. Sure, yeah. My, uh, my background is in both uh, studio art and art history. Uh, so I started out as, as an artist, uh, making art myself, Got my bachelor's degree in both, uh, actually, and I decided to go on for my graduate work in art history. Um, That's what brought me to Seattle. And uh, I got my master's degree in art history uh, at the University of Washington. And I uh, had originally intended to go on for my PhD, but at that point in time, really hadn't committed to academia. You know, I thought I was going to. And uh, it was during that time that uh, the position came open at Davidson Galleries. They were looking for someone who had a a master's degree uh, in art history to head up the uh, antique and modern department. And so uh, that's what uh, landed me there. So it was like right place, right time, right resume. Mm. So at uh, Davidson Galleries, uh, in my capacity there, I managed, um, oh, how did you used to put it? The other? The other, the other 
500 years of printmaking history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to the, 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 the contemporary department uh, where you, you dealt with, you know, the, the, the artists uh, living and working today. Uh, yeah, I had the other uh, 500 years of, of uh, art history. And so I, um, I dealt with, ev- you know, everybody from Durer and Rembrandt to M.C. Escher and Picasso. And uh, it was really quite wonderful. Some of my particular specialties, Walla Davidson, were uh, Goya and uh, artist of my heart, Kate Kolvitz. Uh, and so I managed um, not only like sales uh, and inventory, but I did uh, research and authentication for Davidson galleries. Sometimes with prints, um, work would come in that we would need to authenticate. And, and even works that came in from a, a credible source, we would authenticate as well at Davidson. So a lot of uh, research um, went into my position there in making sure that we had um, authentic pieces. So why should contemporary artists care about the secondary market? How do you think it affects what they do in the big picture? And why do you think it's important that they're aware of it and aware of how it works? Yeah, so with contemporary artists in particular, the secondary market is tricky. For contemporary works wherein the artist is still uh, living, the intuitive places to resell their work are at galleries that represent them because they're the ones that already have the clientele for the work. But very often, galleries that are showing um, those particular artists aren't going to want to show older works. They want to focus on new works by the artist for two reasons, because it keeps it fresh, you know, it keeps the artwork moving, um, shows a progression, you know, in uh, their output. But also when you are selling secondary work, the money in some cases uh, and, and in a lot of cases in the U.S. So I'll, I'll go back, put a pin in that and go back to it. So in a lot of cases in the U.S., when work by a contemporary artist is sold on the secondary market, the person consigning it is the one that gets the profit. The, so the gallery and the consigner split the money and the artist gets nothing. Mm. Now that is changing. Um, I know that the rules are different in California um, in particular uh, and in Europe. Um, there are a lot of uh, guidelines in place in which uh, even work sold in the secondary market, if the artist is still living or if they're a state um, has claim, then um, they are entitled uh, to a portion of the of the proceeds. But there are some gallerists. Uh, one of the ones that I worked for in particular, um, over at Foster White, you know, where they're they're cognizant of that. You know, if they sell work by artists that they currently represent, they uh, willingly give some of the percentage to the artists. So, uh, you know, so there are some gallerists out there who are aware of that. But but that is something to be aware of if you're a contemporary artist. Um, especially in the United States, um, mm. if your gallery is going to be selling some of your work on the secondary market, you know, whether or not you get a percentage of that, but usually, um, you know, again, it takes a while to get to that point. You know, it takes many, many years, um, of selling on the primary market before you're going to start seeing work on the secondary market. So when it comes to collectors, obviously, as you know, and I know, because this was the advice mm. we would give day in and day out. Buy the work because you love it. Buy the work because yes. you love it. Don't buy it because you're expecting to see a return. Buy it because you think the work is worth it and you know it's going to bring a value into your life. Mm-hmm. That being said, of course, we know some collectors will always ignore that or will be inclined mm-hmm. to ignore that. Maybe that's a more gentle way to put that. So the idea that they can resell the work, do you think that that can be a motivating factor for purchasing work initially from contemporary artists? 
Absolutely. I think for some collectors that is a driving force. Um, and the reason for that is primarily because of the shifting perceptions of the art market. So a little bit of background. Uh, so it began really in um, the 1940s. So uh, during World War II, um, the U.S. became really the epicenter um, of the art world because so many artists fled Europe um, and, and came to New York. And that is what prompted then it to become um, such a prominent uh, venue uh, for the arts um, and, and uh, like a landmark place for uh, gauging um, what is happening in the contemporary art world. Now, so moving forward then into the 1970s and 1980s, then what we're seeing is um, the art market and the art world becoming increasingly conflated, wherein previously artwork had been judged more or less on uh, the quality of it, right? So artists would ask, like, how is this relevant to my time? Or if they're part of a particular movement, let's say, like abstract expressionism, you know, how are they answering questions or exploring aesthetic goals, you know, for themselves and for that particular movement? Um, the question then started to, to shift then is into how is this relevant to the art market? You know, and I know that sounds pessimistic, but it is really something that artists even now consistently have to face when considering gallery representation is if their work doesn't happen to be in vogue, uh, you know, are they willing to accommodate current trends mm -hmm. in order to get sales? And if they're not, you know, when, where is their place for them then? You know, the, the white cube gallery, as it were, perhaps not being that, that place that is right for them. So um, we get to a place then um, in the 1990s where um, there is inflation. So we all know this, right? We all know <laughs> about the, um, the, the, house, uh, the housing bubble, right, um, that then bursts and sends us into recession. Well, something similar happened in the arts, um, wherein artwork prices became increasingly inflated, and that bubble also burst. Um, both for contemporary artists um, and for some of your blue chip artists. Now, contemporary artists whose prices had been dramatically inflated in the 90s and the early aughts um, had a hard time recovering. Blue chip artists, and, and, and by that I mean um, artists who have already stood the test of time, artists that people in the art world know their names, you know, Picasso, uh, Jackson Pollock, um, Andy Warhol. You know, so those are what we mean by like, when we say blue chip artists. Um, even though their prices did fall, they bounced back faster um, and their prices, you know, got back to a certain level um, much stronger than a lot of uh, contemporary artists did. But what happened is it really solidified, those years really solidified in the general um, mind, this uh, equation of art with commodity. Mm -hmm. And that is the main shift that causes people to ask that question is what is the resale value of this? That's what causes them to look at it not as this is something I love or this is something that is important to the dialogue of the art world and art history, but this is a commodity that I can then flip and make some money off of later. Yeah, no, that's really significant because it's um, we all kind of hear these these the whispers and rumors about, well, you know, there's actually warehouses in the middle of so-and-so that have, you know, <laughs> millions of dollars of artwork in them that mm -hmm. rich people are just filling as a way to uh, launder their money, basically. Uh, oh, well, 
That actually, do you, are you familiar with the Panama Papers? No, uh-uh. uh uh. So this was a few years back. Um, the Panama Papers were uh, effectively these documents that contained personal um, financial information about wealthy, wealthy individuals and public officials that had previously kept private. So effectively, it was um, like offshore accounts for these extremely wealthy individuals that became public and that released a lot of information about this. It was this landmark sale at Christie's for Victor and Sally Gans in 1997. And so effectively, like, it was that, like it, it, it brought to light this idea that it was really rigged, you know, mm. in order to get like the highest amount of, of money. And so, so there is some... Um, validity like to oh that, yeah yeah they're being <laughs> this intent like to create like art as a commodity to inflate the prices to get these sales to make like the rich richer mm-hmm. so if you're curious if, if you're if anybody out there is curious about this um the, the the panama papers and the the new york times actually did a great article uh called what the panama papers reveal about the art market mm. That sounds like that could be a whole nother podcast, like a whole nother episode we could do. Yeah. So that's why I was like, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll stop here. So I'd love to just chat a little bit since we've kind of covered a bit about from the artist's point of view and from the producer's point of view. But as we all know, some of the best and most supportive print collectors are print artists. So I'm sure there's some people who would love to hear just a bit about some nuts and bolts of print collecting. So if there's Mm. an artist um, or just anyone um, and they want to start print collecting, but let's say they, you know, they don't have an exorbitant amount of funds to start. Mm -hmm. What's the best way for someone who's a great print enthusiast, um, (laughs) but not rich <laughs> to say that way. Um, to start building a, a nice print collection sure that's a good question um so i i would say well first it depends uh perhaps on what uh, kind of art speaks to you so i you know miranda i know that you and i both agree that the best way to buy art is to buy what you love mm. um that you can't do anything better uh, than to buy what you love so that's step number one um, step number two is um, buy from someone reputable. Now, in the art market today, um, you and I both know that there are two great ways to sell your work, and one is through a gallery, uh, through a reputable gallery. Um, so finding a space um, you know, that has a solid knowledge of prints in particular. <laughs> so there are a lot of galleries that sell prints, but genuinely just don't know a lot about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would just do better to go to, to a gallery that, um, I mean, it, uh, I, this sounds bad, but if you can find one, unfortunately there aren't many, yeah. um, that specialize in prints, but if you can find one that specializes um, in prints and has an expert on staff, um, finding someone who's very knowledgeable to guide you. Um, second is to, um, find those artists because there are plenty, um, who, who find that the gallery space is not right for them, um, and are selling on their own. And honestly, and you can't get a better provenance than that, than mm-hmm. <laughs> buying from the artist um, directly. And I know a lot of artists use online sources like Instagram um, to sell their work. So, um, so yeah, I would maybe seek out the artists that, that you like and um, either like, buy from them um, or seek out those spaces um, that specialize um, in prints and, um, you know, have that reputation, have that expertise who are going to guide you. Um, because unfortunately, um, you know, as you and I both know, there's a lot of, um, 
not only like fakes and forgeries, you know, I think a lot of people get caught up in the like, oh, is this a forgery? Is it a fake? Not that those don't exist, but more often than not, um, in the secondary market in particular. So if we want to bring our focus back there, what trip people up is misinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, is sometimes the galleries just genuinely don't know. They are misleading. Uh, in their information and then so people buy something and uh, they thinking it's one thing and finding out it's it's something else uh, completely so that is the largest uh, pitfall with um, prints on the secondary market particularly if you're thinking of um, you know ones that are popular like oh goodness Salvador Dali (laughs) oh Mr. Salvador (laughs) yes exactly that is a whole other kettle of fish so maybe actually to kind of use Salvador Dali as an example, can you, just because it's to, you know, move from the abstract to the specific, could you speak a little bit to why Salvador Dali is so problematic? Because I feel like he's a case study in the things that can go wrong in print collecting, especially when you're working for um, an artist whose all work is, is secondary market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with Salvador Dali presents um, an interesting case study in the various different kinds of prints that you're going to find on the secondary market. So first are um, signed lifetime impressions. So working uh, in the secondary market with prints, we know that we have multiple originals. And one of the greatest tools that are disposable are catalog raisonnés that tell us like what kind of paper something is printed on, how many of a particular edition were printed, what, um, where the signature you know, was located. So there's various and sundry markers then that we as dealers can look at and identify something as coming from a known edition. And then we look at the signature and uh, authenticate the signature. And so if all of those things line up, then as a print expert, you can say with confidence, yes, this is something from this edition that we see here historically recorded. It meets all of the parameters. I, with my eyes, I can see this and know that it is, let's say, a lithograph, you know, with hand color, you know, and and you can identify it as such um, and you know the things to look for. So that is best case scenario. Um, So second to that is uh, a restrike. So a re-strike is um, something that is from an original plate stone or block, um, so the original matrix, but is done posthumously. And so it's not a fake or forgery, but it's not a lifetime signed impression either. It can still be a quality print, but if it's not marketed truthfully, then someone could buy something that does have value, but maybe pay more for it than it's worth. So... So you have the, the lifetime signed impressions or even like lifetime impressions that are unsigned because those exist versus a restrike. And then so the next one down the line, um, our, our collaborative prints, and this uh, applies to Dolly in particular. And so those are ones in which he um, was aware and perhaps even um, contributed to uh, reproductions of his work but they are, in effect, reproductions. So he created watercolors that he then authorized to be reproduced as lithographs. And uh, those are some of the most problematic because they weren't very well documented. And so we don't know, for example, like what kinds of paper they're printed on or how many of each. We have a vague idea of what might have been done. 
And so even though you could get a print, so we can look at something and say, yes, this is a lithograph and we can look at it and identify it as such. You know, it's not a lifetime impression. It, it is still, in fact, a reproduction. And then beyond that, that's when you get into the straight up fakes and forgeries, um, things that were produced um, either in ways that we're just unaware of that aren't documented. And so a dealer just shouldn't touch um, or they are straight up um, reproductions that people are then unaware of as having any sort of difference between a reproduction and an original print. So like Lincoln and Dolly Vision, for example, uh, is one of the prime examples. It's a reproduction. Like it was a painting that Dolly made and there are many, many, many reproductions of it, some of which he signed, but they're still reproductions. Mm -hmm. And so just because something has a pencil signature on it does not mean it's an original print and it does not mean that it is valuable. It's a signed poster. Right. So it, so it essentially has the value that any famous person's autograph would have in exactly. that situation. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so again, not that it's not valuable or doesn't have any value. It's just not going to have the same value as like a lifetime signed impression mm -hmm. of, you know, a Dolly work, which is, you know, you know, Dolly is very difficult to authenticate because, you know, of all of the, um, you know, just all of the complexities, you know, and all of the different versions of his work that he released. And, and of course, there's, there's like a, always a rumor. And this is something that people would um, always bring is like, oh, yeah, Dolly just signed a bunch of blank pieces of paper and, and had his publisher's print on them, right? I'm like, not exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there were, he did give broad license to publications of his work and kind of sign things willy-nilly. But that is, it's kind of a myth. Um, not as, as straightforward as, as it sounds. I mean, so it's based, it's one of those things where it's like, it's based in fact, but not necessarily 100% true. Well, the most useful thing I can say about Dolly prints is don't buy one on a cruise. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't buy any art on a cruise, actually. Yeah. 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 Um, Just don't do it. So could you ever, with a clear conscience, recommend someone who may not have the resources to do basically authentication themselves? You know, the um, as you said, the catalog resumes are so important, and yeah. a lot of them are so rare that they cost more than some of the prints from some of these artists, the, the mm -hmm. resumes themselves, um, to ever buy from an auction, even a reputable auction, oh. if they're going for prints. Yeah, so um, auctions, some of them have uh, authentication. So, so, so some of them have a team um, that does do authentication uh, and quality control. Others do not. Um, auctions are in general um, a buyer beware arena. So it just depends on where you're going. If it's a smaller local auction house, I would apply the same logic. You know, if it's something you love, even if you buy it and you find out it's not an original print, are you still going to love it for the price? You know, is it worth it to you? Then yeah, go ahead and buy it. Knock yourself out. But if you're only buying it because you think it might have some value, like just proceed with caution. As long as we're talking about the whole world of the secondary print market is condition and also the issues around conservation. Once you, let's, once you, let's say like you've, you've purchased a Colvitz, how are you going to keep this, you know, so you can pass it on to your granddaughter? That is one of the key issues when buying from auction um, is because a, a lot of them aren't going to inspect the condition of a print with painting and with sculpture, um, a lot of times you can you can see 
the condition issues, they present themselves, but with works on paper, a lot of issues can be hidden by a frame. And it's not until you open that frame are you going to be able to see the extent of the condition issues. So anything framed before the 1990s, you can expect some condition issues. Because for decades, works were framed with the intention of not taking them out again. Framing was supposed to be permanent. It wasn't expected ever that the work was going to come out because why would you need to conserve a work on paper? <laughs> you know? And so you're, you're just going to find something, even if it was framed well. If it was framed in the 70s, there's going to be something. And um, so this usually comes from one of two areas. Um, either it's going to be burned by the acid in materials that touch it. So non-archival map board, cardboard, um, mm. even um, if the the paper is laid against it, it's just going to be stained, you know, from the leaching out of the acids over time. Um, you're also going to see things um, like matte burn. So that comes out of the, um, again, the cut edge of a mat around a piece, the acid leaches out faster and creates like a brown frame around it where it's touching the paper. And then there's also toning. Uh, and toning comes from exposure to light. That is, you know, anything that's framed, you know, is going to be exposed to light, even if you have the fancy uh, UV protective glass. Right now, it's not going to hold out all the light. It helps. Don't get me wrong. Really good museum glass <laughs> is awesome and worth it if you can afford it. But nevertheless, you know, if you put something in direct sunlight, it's still going to get through. And so, of course, non-UV uh, glass, um, it's going to happen much, much faster. Um, and then that browns the paper uh, over time. The worst condition issues um, that you can ever encounter um, with the piece is adhesive. And so that's something that can be devastating. So I would see this particularly with work like um, Piranesi and Goya, mainly because they uh, have editions that were printed um, much earlier in history. And so sometimes you could be looking at a frame job that was done 100 years ago, in which the work is just completely glued to uh, a surface. So a lot of the adhesives, they uh, cannot be removed by a conservator. Um, they stain the work, and that just it just cannot be removed by most conservative processes. Often um, the backboard would have to, it has to be stripped off piece by piece. Like you can't float the work off of uh, a board that it's been glued down onto. You actually have to strip it off the back mm. of the with some adhesives. Though conditions like mat burn uh, and like toning usually can be cleaned uh, depending on the severity of it because the paper uh, can be bleached. And it's, as, and it's as simple as that in a lot of cases. That, with the caveat um, being that most prints with traditional printmaking methods like uh, traditional intaglio and traditional lithographs are done with oil-based inks. And so a lot of the conservators' processes uh, are based on that assumption is that we're dealing with oil-based inks. So unfortunately, if you have any water-based inks or hand color that is water-based, you, in general, can't clean that unless you go to a specialist because those inks will wash right out. Um, you also have to be careful of any like collector stamps, um, any signature stamps, effectively anything that might be on the surface of that print that is water-based. If you need to clean it, it's going to wash out. And there are definitely some collector stamps that would add value to the piece or just add history that you would not want to lose. Precisely, yeah. So especially with um, older works like with Rembrandt or Durer, for example, we have... Um, uh, collections of notable collectors and what their uh, collector stamps look like. And so it, it can be one way to authenticate a piece if you have a particular collector's collector stamp on it, because you can trace it back to that particular provenance. And you definitely don't want to lose that um, because it's going to decrease the value. But the condition, you know, also decreases the value of the work. And so, you know, you really have to then 
start gauging whether or not it's worth the risk. Um, and so to, sorry, sorry to answer like the second part of your question, mm -hmm. to preserve your own work uh, once you buy one. So, so you do have, you know, a case of Kovlitz and it's in great condition because you bought it from a reputable dealer. <laughs> then, uh, yes. So the best thing you can do again is go to a reputable um, framer. Um, shout out to Gallery Frames in Seattle. So we would often send people to, so for example, you know, like Gallery Frames here in Seattle, because um, we know they, they, one, know how to handle paper, um, and they know how to frame them uh, carefully um, using all archival materials, making sure that the paper does not come in contact with anything that is not acid-free or archival. Um, and then it's up to you whether or not you want to pop for the UV protective glass. Uh, but the more important uh, thing is just to not hang it in direct light. And then I think the probably like the the last part that I can think of. It's interesting, like talking to you. It's like it's all coming back. But could you just maybe sort of talk briefly about provenance and certificates of <laughs> yeah. authenticity? Oh boy, yeah. So there there tended to be, you know, in in my time at Davidson Galleries, uh, collectors who you know didn't know anything about print collecting, and so would come to us for guidance several clients who knew quite a bit, you know, very knowledgeable and do their own research ahead of time. And then there's that client that fell in the middle and they tended to know just enough to know the words provenance and certificate of authenticity. And, you know, with print collecting, those two things, they can be good, but aren't necessarily proof, you know, of an authentic print. Mm -hmm. So with paintings uh, and sculpture, usually um, you get a provenance with any particular piece because the sale records have been tracked essentially from when it left the artist's studio to when you buy it. Like that is just common. And so it's become a buzzword. But with prints, because we're dealing in a secondary market that has multiple originals, provenance is usually, not always, but usually something you just can't track. And that's because historically it wasn't tracked. You know, um, prints weren't viewed as important as mm -hmm. paintings. Sure. And so people just didn't keep records. And like as early as like 50 years ago, I've had clients <laughs> in to, to resell their own works. Like I'm talking to the person who bought it and they have no records at all of their own purchase that they can provide me. They don't even remember what gallery they bought it from because it was 50 years ago when they were in France, you know? And so that is why then going to a dealer who has an expert on stuff who can authenticate and has that catalog raisonné, that's why that is important. So having a provenance or lack thereof does not necessarily mean that it's good or bad. It just is when you're dealing with, with prints. Mm -hmm. um, and so certificate of authenticity then leads me to that reputation dealer again <laughs> um, because any jerk with a printer can print it with their certificate of authenticity you know see our note back there about never buying something from a cruise um, what I was saying before about um, misleading information um, again some dealers doing it deliberately and some dealers just being ignorant you know of the things that they need to look for and both of those usually end up with a certificate of authenticity with misleading or vague information. They'll have like artist title and then that's it. And then, you know, the signature and the gallery, but the gallery closed, you know, they were only operating for like five years. But you give that person that shiny gold foil covered certificate of authenticity and they feel secure, you know, like that's money in the bank. And that is just, it's, it's just heartbreaking because 
It's just so not true. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many people brought in, you know, a piece that they had purchased and they, they hand me with confidence, you know, their manila folder, you know, with the bill of sale and with the certificate of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell them, you know, it's okay. Yep. Yeah, this is a Miro, but this is, you know, an undocumented edition of Miro. These are the ones we know of. So this is likely um, an, an unauthorized printing of his work and I can't touch it. And so with a very, very reputable gallery. So one that has a lot of um, history um, and uh, reputation, then uh, you don't necessarily need a certificate of authenticity. Your bill of sale from that gallery um, is going to really be all that you need. Mm. Um, But if you want one, um, a gallery will issue you one. Like if if you ask, you know, at Dead Davidson, you know, we, we did that, even though, um, because of the long reputation of Davidson Galleries um, and our own expertise there, um, mine and Sam's, the bill of sale usually was would have been good enough. But we, we would often issue certificates of authenticity because people like to have them for their records, and that was fine. But the presence of a certificate of authenticity does not mean that it is authentic. It just means someone had a printer. Yeah, and I think that that you know that would be the really hard moments when people would come in. Uh-huh. It's not like they were trying to, when they bought it, get a deal and scam someone out of something and feel like, oh, I got this Moreau for super cheap and now I'm going to flip it. You know, they often Mm -hmm. bought it in good faith for what was a lot of money. And they're just, Mm -hmm. you know, I... I remember one particular heartbreaking moment when a, oh, a I know, guy, yeah, I know which one you're the guy who came in and was like, "These were for my grandkids." You know, I I was I'm selling these to like get money to help pay for my grandkids' college, and yeah. they were all reproductions. Yeah, and that that was actually what I was thinking of when I, I said Miro in particular. Yeah, because yeah, he he had been buying these these Miro pieces for decades. And they were his, like, he, he considered them like his, his savings account, yeah. right, the, the legacy. And he had brought them in to us and he was finally going to make this money and, and leave this to his grandkids. And yeah, I, I had to tell him, um, and it was exactly that. Um, they were lithographs and they were murals, but there were certain things like those particular murals, for example, were only issued um, for Derrière le Miroir which was a, a magazine. So they should have been on cheaper paper and they should have had um, centerfolds in them. But they were on nice paper and no centerfolds. Um, and so with artists like Miro and with um, Calder, um, there are instances where and there are lithographs out there, but we can't place them. We're not entirely sure where they came from, but mm-hmm. they look like they were from some of the original stones, but not all. So you see color discrepancies. Uh, you see some um, parts of the print missing entirely, and then the signatures are also off. So those three things indicate that it is an unauthorized um, edition, and that's what this gentleman had. And yeah, it was it was heartbreaking. And I remember I had to go. Yeah, I get the get the owner of the gallery because he he didn't believe me. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just so outraged, so I actually I did have to go and, and get Sam um, to come down and, and corroborate what I had said. And he just crumbled. It was, uh, yeah, one of the worst days I had there. Yeah, that was that was a rough one. Um, although I think this is this is actually kind of a natural transition, though. Speaking of having to go get oh. the man <laughs> from upstairs, yeah. you know, I think something that 
that we both faced being in the print market, of course, was mm-hmm. was being yeah. um, young women in the field. And I yeah. think that I didn't get it as bad as you because a lot of my art that I was selling, a lot of the artists I was working with weren't really necessarily known to anyone. You know, they're, they're contemporary printmakers. So within printmaking, they're known. But people didn't tend to come in with this sense of like, oh, I know about Sean Caulfield. I took an art history class. <laughs> I think I had it a bit easier than you. But you were in the old boys club. Of- I sure was. <laughs> and so I would see um, moments you know, when people would just not believe you or talk down to you. And uh, yeah, I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about that element of your experience. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, like, like anything, there, there are some standout examples. <laughs> um, like, oh, you know, because as you mentioned, I, um, I'm, a, I'm a woman. I, I look younger uh, than I am. I'm small of stature, I'm blonde, I have blue eyes, and so I did get a lot, you know, of that, that perception that I was an intern or an assistant and not the director of the gallery. Mm-hmm. I would have people pat me on the head, you know, like I wasn't <laughs> cute. I literally had a, a gentleman, so, so Sam and a gentleman were like looking through the bins for something that I knew where it was, and so I approached them and I'm like, oh, do you need my help? And the gentleman Sam was speaking, he literally turned his back on me and shushed me away, like, like with his hand, like mm. beckoned to me to like leave him alone. Then there, there was another uh, instance where I was with, you know, a gentleman, he was bringing work in on consignment and I was going through the paperwork uh, with him, um, like the consignment agreement, uh, going over the terms with him. And at that point in time, Sam just happened to come downstairs. And so usually when it happens, you know, as a courtesy, you know, I introduce him like, oh, you know, by the way, this is Sam Davidson. He's the owner of the gallery. Sam, this is so-and-so uh, who is consigning some work with us. And this gentleman was also very, very tall, as, as was our, our boss. Very tall man. And he turns around and says, I swear, like, that's what I like to see, a tall man. <laughs> and I remember that. Okay, like I know he didn't mean anything necessarily by that towards me in particular, but he just effectively said everything that I was not. Yeah. And immediately what happened was Sam took over that conversation, even though I had done all of the authentication and price research for this consignment. So, uh, yeah, yeah, so there are those, those examples Mm -hmm. um, wherein uh, I was dealing with a clientele you know, that was overwhelmingly male, um, overwhelmingly white, and overwhelmingly older. And so usually what would happen is I would have to prove myself. Mm-hmm. Um, effectively, I would have to outsmart um, <laughs> them in order to prove that I was knowledgeable. Uh, and then usually in those instances, what I would get is like, wow, well, you oh, sure yeah. know a lot about this. <laughs> and so what I learned over the years at Davidson was how to navigate these waters gracefully because you know, when you're a dealer as angry as those situations can make you um you still are in a professional environment you are representing the gallery and in your own professional face 
you know, and so flying off the handle is not going to help you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as a professional woman, it's only going to reinforce those stereotypes about women being emotional in the workplace. So I would just have to learn how to gracefully sidestep those comments and yet try and, and draw their attention to what they were saying. Mm-hmm. So usually when I would get that, so I was like, all right, I'm going to have to prove myself. And so I would, because I knew a darn lot about <laughs> those pieces. And inevitably, you know, I guess, wow, well, you're really knowledgeable. And often I would just kind of step back and say, well, you sound surprised. <laughs> and that usually had the effect that I wanted. You know, I didn't offend them, but I very much pointed out that they were being condescending to me because of course I know. <laughs> Well, they used to say, it's like, I, I have a master's degree, 10 years experience, and I'm a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <sighs> Although I know it was never particularly comfortable for you, some mm-hmm. of my favorite afternoons <laughs> were, watching, <laughs> were watching you uh, gracefully steer someone <laughs> Towards a uh, uh, perhaps an unconscious bias <laughs> that worked really well. Um, yeah, I remember being quite amused by, <laughs> yeah. or just like you know, I'd hear something come out of someone's mouth, and I was like, I'd be like, "This is gonna be good," <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, so it, it was a challenge, uh, you know. Albeit though, toward the um, once I got more proficient at it, once I got more confident in myself, actually, more importantly, I, I feel like when I first started Davidson, it was harder. Yeah. Um, but um, once I, I had more confidence in myself, it became a lot easier to navigate those waters. And sometimes um, it, it was fun for me too, <laughs> to, <laughs> to have those triumphs. Uh, you know, not that I necessarily felt like I needed to lord my expertise over over people, but just knowing that I was called to task and I, I could prove myself, even though it became tiring, I had to do it again yeah. and again and again. You know, I, I still met that challenge um, each and every time. Each yeah. and every time. Yeah. And, and I think that that's part of growing professionally in any field um, is, is starting to, learning to know your worth. Um, but particularly right. as a woman in an old boys club, that learning curve has to be a lot quicker in order for you to, well, keep your sanity, but also to thrive, I think. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. And you just, I think with a lot of women professionals too, like we can't just be as good as we have to be better. Right. Um, so I felt like I, I had to truly be an expert um, in a lot of the fields in, in order to uh, countermand you know, something mm-hmm. someone might be telling me. And, um, yeah, one of the prime examples was, uh, I, this was at a, at a, a fair, at a trade fair. Um, I was not uh, in my capacity as a print dealer at that time. I was working for another gallery, but um, I came across a booth that had two Dolly prints. Surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them was um, an original lithograph and the other was a reproduction. But he he had them both as lithographs and both at the same price. And I went over to him and I'm like, so excuse me, um, I'm sorry, but did you, because again, like genuinely, I, I didn't know. Some people just don't know. Mm-hmm. So I went up to him like, I'm sorry, did, did you realize that that one over there is, is in fact a reproduction print? And he, of course, and he was an older gentleman, he got all puffed up, 
do you know who Field is and what the Field Guide is? And I was like, well, yeah, that's the catalog raising day. That's the, that's the man who wrote one of the Dolly catalog raising days. Well, he authenticated both of these. And I was like, oh, really? And he, like, throws down these two certificates of authenticity. And I look at one. I look at the other. One says lithograph. One says uh, chromolithograph. <laughs> and I, I pointed at it. And I was like, yeah, see, right here? Chromolithograph, that's um, that's... That's a that's a method of reproduction. So Dolly, it looks like Dolly signed this, and that's what Field is authenticating, but this is still a reproduction print. <laughs> but, like, he could so easily have diffused me in that moment, like, if I didn't know off the cuff who Field was. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? And like, so because I made such an ardent study, like, of all of the you know, the prince and the raisin days, I, I had to know that in that, in that moment. So I always think back to that moment where like, I couldn't just be as good as I had to be better, but not all of the clients that I dealt with were a daily struggle. Um, I had so many delightful, delightful clients that were just, um, you know, painful to leave. You know, I miss those working relationships. Yeah, for sure. And they, they of course are what made our jobs worthwhile. Definitely. Yeah. So speaking of fairs, though, I get a lot of questions about the current state of art fairs, or really, I think more specifically, the current state of print fairs. What's your impression of their their health, well-being, their validity, their um, necessity, all of that? Oof. Um, boy, that's tricky. Um, because with dealers who are in the secondary market, um, most of them are older. And as they get older and as they close their spaces, most of them aren't passing to the galleries on to, to younger dealers. They're just closing. And so while the print fairs did seem to be dominated by secondary market, the, the future of the secondary market for me, at least at that point, was very unclear. Because I recall, for example, when, when we did the, um, the Portland Fine Art Print Fair, and we were there, the only um, dealers who um, were doing the secondary market who were under 50 were me and um, oh, Bernard. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. blanking on the, the gallery where he... Uh, Armstrong. He's working. Um, thank you, Armstrong. Mm-hmm. We were the only two. Um, that's not to say that there isn't you know, a future for those spaces. I just, I think with secondary market galleries and with... Uh, contemporary galleries, both, it just seems to me that the gap is widening. Mm-hmm. The bigger galleries are getting bigger and the smaller galleries are getting smaller. And it's just changing. Now, because there's a lot more online resources, like for secondary print dealing, as well as primary market, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. just is. But, you know, there are those uh, still a lot of the um, powerhouse galleries, a lot of the galleries that have solid reputation um, in print dealing that aren't going anywhere, like um, Gallery Saint-Étienne, for example. Uh, Gallery Saint-Étienne in New York City, um, one of the longest print galleries and one of the most reputable. Um, and as far as I can tell, they're not going anywhere mm-hmm. you know, for a while. So I, I, I wish I wish I had a more definitive answer yeah. for you. I think, honestly, it just remains to be seen. Um, because we are at a changing of the guard right now with secondary print galleries. And so I'm, I'm curious. So just before we, we sign off, as we go through and we were talking about all these different things, you know, you keep saying 
reputable galleries, reputable galleries. I'm wondering if you would feel comfortable just name dropping a few oh. that you feel are reputable and that people can go to to avoid the cruise ships. <laughs> <laughs> so as we mentioned before, uh, Armstrong Fine Art um, in Chicago, Gallery Saint-Étienne uh, in New York. Oh, the gentleman in Portland. Augen Gallery. There we go. Oh, oh, William P. Carl Fine Prince uh, in North Carolina, I believe. Another reputable dealer um, in uh, Santa Rosa, California, uh, is Annex uh, Galleries. So those are, are some of the um, galleries that I that I dealt with personally. And if I'm forgetting anybody out there that I did deal with personally, I'm very sorry. <laughs> but if you are out there and you are looking for a reputable gallery, um, a good resource for you is the IFPDA website. So that is the International Fine Print Dealers Association. Um, and their site, it's a little wonky. Um, but if you scroll all the way down to the bottom, you'll see a link that says member dealers. And with on that page, um, you can look up by location. Unfortunately, it's just by city and not by state. So if anybody from the IFPDA is listening, <laughs> maybe a search by state would be great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me and just throwing down your amazing print knowledge um, and sharing some war stories from the business as well. Um, so if anyone wants to follow you and your continued art adventures, is there a way that they can, they can do that through the internet? Um, so right now, um, the best way you can find me uh, is on Instagram, uh, actually. I, uh, my handle is artsyhistorian. Uh, artsy underscore historian uh, and there I uh, have my art historian hat on most of the time for my posts uh, so I post a lot about um, contemporary arts that I like uh, historical artists in my um, so in my new role as a so I'm, I'm an art history professor now um, uh, post uh, gallery world employee post gallerist uh, and so that is generally my persona uh, on Instagram is as art historian so if you want to follow my exploits there uh, please do Wonderful, and I will definitely link to that as well. Um, so thank you again, and uh, we'll be in touch. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure. Wonderful, okay. Bye. That's our show for this week. Tune in again two weeks So we had recorded the episode a couple of weeks ago that our listeners mm -hmm. have just heard. Mm -hmm. And then I solicited everyone on Instagram for some questions to ask our, our gallerist here. And I got a few and some really good ones. And as you might be able to hear, I am no longer in my home doing this interview, but instead I'm in a litho studio. So I'm much more echoey. So I apologize <laughs> to anyone who that bothers. We will we'll dive in. So Josephine asked, how does additioning and numbering affect the value of prints? There's no difference between a 1 out of 50 and a 50 out of 50. And there is no difference between an artist proof and um, a numbered edition in terms of value. Often it will come down to, as far as value goes, it comes down to the name of the artist. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are going to be Dali, you know, Giclés that are going to sell more for an original piece, you know, by a lesser known artist, even if the edition is 2000. The next question from Emma, who mm -hmm. asked, how did you get your start as a gallerist? 
kind of a two-part story. I, I worked a lot in coffee shops and bookstores mm-hmm. uh, in college. And one of my painting professors came in one day and was like, oh, hey, Shayla, you know what? A friend of mine um, owns a gallery and is looking for somebody. Would you be interested? Well, maybe. Like, what is it that, that she's looking to have done? And he's like, well, I don't know. Um, uh, give her a call. Uh, so her name's, uh, he told me, Joe Anderson. Uh, and she, she was the owner of Anderson O'Brien uh, Gallery in, in Omaha, Nebraska. So I called the phone, I introduced myself, and I said, oh, yeah, so-and-so uh, recommended me to you. And I was wondering, is the job still open? And, and what are you looking for? And she goes, do you know Photoshop? Yes, yes, I do. Can, can you interview at, at 11 o'clock? And it was like 10.30. <laughs> yes, yes, I can. <laughs> so I go in. She points to the computer and she says, uh, can you print this, uh, this like, such-and-such document so it shows the, uh, the, the, like, the painting and all the information? So I'm thinking, okay, test. Yes, I can do this. So I did it, and I printed it, and, and I, I gave it to her. It's like, okay, now I need this. And so effectively what happened is I ended up working like a four-hour shift. And uh, so I worked about three days <laughs> before asking her, um, so do I have a job? She's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I guess we should talk about your pay. So after that, I didn't expect really to get into gallery work because I went to graduate school for art history and um, was, was planning to teach, to get my PhD and to teach. So that's a longer story that, that I'll, I'll, I'll edit. And uh, just suffice <laughs> it to say, I decided to end at my master's. Fortune came along once again, and I had a, a professor who... Um, knew uh, a gallery owner here in Seattle, um, Sam Davidson at Davidson Galleries, and uh, gave me a referral to interview with him uh, for his director of antique print. That got my foot in the door, um, and then my my resume and my interview got me the job. I think particularly for young people who are interested in getting started, just that ability to just, you know, put yourself in situations, show up on time, do good Mm -hmm. work, be pleasant, and someone's going to look at you and be like, hey, you know the gallery down the street's looking for someone. Yeah, yeah. For anyone um, out there looking to, to break in, um, the best thing you can possibly do is get involved. Mm-hmm. And depending on your circumstances, you know, that could mean a full-fledged internship somewhere. You can also look at artist collectives um, or just start showing up, you know, at art openings, talk to people, you know, shake hands. So the next question comes from Jane. And she had a really astute question about having relationships with multiple galleries when you make multiples. And she was actually specifically interested in when both galleries, for instance, are doing things like going to the same print fair. So with most galleries, um, you will likely have a contract. And so the specifics of who else you um, can sell with within the confines of that contract are, are just, they're going to be varied depending on who you're working with. But with most galleries, um, you know, especially if they're selling prints, likely you're going to have some latitude to sell in other parts of the country or internationally. Uh, so, you know, as long as you're, you're working um, in a transparent manner within, within your contract, then no worries. Uh, most galleries will, will, will give you that space. To, to sell at other um, locations. The only times I can think of where you might have to limit what you send to a particular gallery is if you have an exhibition coming up. Um, because if you have arranged to do an exhibition with a particular gallery, they're going to want exclusivity to those works for a while. Uh, I'm guessing, you know, again, like you, you always want the best thing you can do is just be transparent with your gallery. But also be aware of your, your own worth and what they're doing for you. So if you have a gallery that is not really selling well, 
and they've demanded um, a pretty um, high exclusivity from you, then it's okay to question that. And then how does it work um, with print fair? As far as I know, that's up to the gallery store <laughs> to, <laughs> to work out. Yeah. Um, that is something, I, I will be honest, that is something that I, I did not encounter because I was the antique director. I mm-hmm. think maybe you could be able to answer that question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, so I would, I would definitely say um, that, yes, that that is something that kind of honestly isn't your problem. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you have developed these relationships within the contracts offered by both galleries... That's kind of like you're doing your thing. You are upholding the professional side of that agreement. And honestly, when I would go to print fairs with contemporary work, like, yeah, like we might have Carol Wax and someone else might have Carol Wax, but chances are we didn't bring the same Carol Wax pieces. And so the last question is Tony asked, do artists still need galleries? And what are the (laughs) benefits That is a really good question and a question that I know a lot of artists are asking themselves. Um, And so there are a lot of potential benefits of working with a gallery. So first, um, ask yourself, like, do you have enough time and energy to produce work and promote yourself daily? And I mean daily. And then if you are and you do. Um, look at your um, your outlets. So say you are using Instagram, say you're using Etsy. Are you selling enough? You know, like through your efforts, um, maybe your, your artist website, maybe you have a newsletter, any of the various things that you can do as an artist, are you actually generating the sales that you, that you need and that you want? Um, you might also ask yourself, um, can you manage and track your inventory? Um, and one of the, the big things really, honestly, about um, gallery representation is the prestige. You know, mm-hmm. Just to be perfectly frank, you know, is the prestige important to you? you know, do you want you know, your work hanging um, you know, in a white cube space? Do you want to go to gallery openings? Do you want to do artist talks? Do you want to um, have that? Um, and for some artists, the answer is yes, and that's awesome and for some mm-hmm. artists it's no <laughs> yeah and that is that is also fine too and then and then yeah so um to go towards this this person's question um asking yourself are you going to be frustrated by a gallery's rules about sales and exclusivity and commissions um you might also want to ask yourself if you're open to receiving criticism and advice about your work mm-hmm. because um there are some artists out there i know that would feel that to be um a pitfall you know, something that they just can't, you know, handle working with, you know, and again, and that's fine. If you, if you really want that freedom to just do your art the way you want to do it and, and put it out there in that raw form, then go for it, you know, go, go print maybe to an artist collective um, in spaces where you can really just express yourself um, free form and not have to worry about that. But um, if you do want to sell your work, if you do want to be a part of the business, you know, as we, we talked about earlier, you know, selling art is a business. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do want to do that, um, one of the things that can be a benefit from a gallery, if you look at it that way, is receiving advice and criticism about your work. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a really good answer because, like, I think people get caught up a little bit in trying to find a hierarchy, you know, mm-hmm. that that's sort of like, well, being with a gallery means you're X, Y, and Z, and not right. being with a gallery means you're X, Y, and Z, and yeah. and that you know one is better than the other. And in the end, right. it comes down to the individual person and what is right for them. 
Um, so thank you again for coming back and doing uh, being a part of our experimental artist interaction episode of Pine Copper Lime. Oh, yes. Um, happy to do it. That's our show for this week. Tune in again in two weeks' time when I'm going to chat with our lady of cut plate intaglio mastery, Allie Norman. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you around.